0: conversation on post recaps, a podcast bringing you coverage of the labor disputes in television and film. I am Dr. Amanda and I am the host for these conversations. Today we will be giving you an update on the status of the Hollywood labor disputes. There's big news all around as I'm sure by now everybody has heard. The Writers Guild of America has an agreement with the AMPTP. So we'll be getting into all of that, talking about what's happening with SAG-AFTRA. And i um, also speaking about how these developments and all of the recent conversation is relevant for other workers in the entertainment industry. And we have a really great guest to get into all of that. I am joined by my dear friend, Naomi Calhoun, who is a television production coordinator who's worked on shows for HBO, Hulu, and Netflix. Thank you for joining me today, Naomi. (laughs) Hi, Amanda.
1: Oh, my God. Sorry, doctor. Hi, doctor. I'm so excited (laughs) to be here with you, and um, I'm so glad that you guys are doing this on Posho Recaps because nothing is more important than talking about your salary and talking about transparency Mm -hmm. in the workplace.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this is, you know, it's unfortunate when like, you know, it's unfortunate that it's taken a painful strike and for workers to, you know, have to suffer without work to get this deal. But I think that the visibility of it is a great opportunity for all of us who have been consuming media and talking about it and loving and appreciate it to actually understand everything that goes
1: into making it. I. TV is something where you think it is an industry full of millionaires and an industry full of people who are making enormous profits. But in reality, it's like every other type of company where there are CEOs and there are people who certainly make very, very healthy salaries. And then there are a lot of people who are at the bottom who are consistently uh, paid minimum wage and don't have any up word motion in their life. And uh, it's not all glitz and glamour. And I think that there are so many things to think about in this industry that I hope when we're done with this conversation, people will, will keep in mind.
0: Um, well, I'm really looking forward to getting all of it, into all of that with you. Um, before we jump in, um, just again, listeners, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast by using our RSS link. Um, you can find that by searching in uh, the, your RSS feed and your podcatcher of choice for com slash strike. That's com slash strike. And you can also rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate that. And feel free to submit any questions or topics that you're interested in hearing more about by going to postshowrecaps.com slash strike FAQ. So, Naomi. Huge news. We always do these updates here on the podcast. Um last time I I spoke with Bram about VFX and animation. We were on day 144 of the GA strike and on September 24th, after 146 days of labor stoppage, right before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the (laughs) AMTBDP and the WGA reached an agreement. Um, The WGA has since uh, voted to um support that, to ratify that uh contract um this is considered a really great
1: win for the WGA. It's it's incredible. I I was really um blown away by what was accomplished because mm-hmm. um I have been following this closely first of all, I have, I have a lot of friends who are writers who were on strike during this entire thing. Um, and I know personally, Now, I want to clarify that I don't work in, um, very often I don't work in scripted television Mm -hmm. or I don't work on scripted. The last scripted content I used to work on was I used to work on Hallmark movies, which were so much fun, um, but also non-union sets. And I work in the doc reality world, but it is so important to see a victory like this because what happens... To people who are working on a Netflix scripted show, happens to me at work because mm. I work for uh, one of the big companies, right? I if I'm working for HBO, what hap- Max? Sorry, uh, if I work for Max, <laughs> and Max is able to have these high labor standards for writers and and scripted shows, then it's possible for people who are in the unscripted realm as well. So I'm just I'm so excited to talk about what victories have been achieved here, and I think it's it makes me feel very proud that also the internet it sounds like the vague the the nebulous internet but mm-hmm. the internet could come together and be very supportive of strike uh of striking workers and of a labor union that was disruptive and and instead of turning around and saying like well why don't they just make the fucking show i don't care yeah. they were very positive and young people were involved in a way that I don't think I ever expected to see people on TikTok caring about, like, strike drama for 100 days straight. So Mm -hmm. I was very impressed.
0: Yeah, um, really great points. I do, after we talk about what exactly was won in this negotiation, I also, like, do Mm want to take a step back and look at actually what it took to get here because I think it's, like, without the strike, without the solidarity, without the resolve of the writers to wait for the agreement that they, that they really needed existentially at this point in time. Um, I don't think that they get this from the AMPTP. So I think that it's important to look at what goes into that and understand like just how important those tactics are to winning a labor agreement like this. Um, but, you know, I'm looking right here at the summary of the the WGA um, memorandum of agreement. Um, this is here they got um, minimum increases, so their rates uh, increase um, with uh, by five percent instead of um, instead of what, uh, which I think three percent was was what the standard had been. But they um, so they got a greater. Rate increase, um, increased health and pension contribution rate, and increased health and pension contributions for writing teams. So this is, you know, really important for people's, you know, security and um, their health coverage. Uh, artificial intelligence was a big issue uh, during these negotiations, and. The agreement that was reached stipulates that AI can't write or rewrite literary material and AI generated material will not be considered source material under the MBA, meaning that AI generated material can't be used to undermine writer's credit or separated rights. And now this was an issue that we talked about um we talked about this with Dan Shipman when he came on. We talked about it with Chelsea Davison um, and other WGA members. But one of the concerns here was that even if AI isn't like good enough to write a script, if they can say that AI is source material, then that's a lower Payment for a script, like for example, if you write a script based on a book, then it's an uh, that it, then writers get a different rate. So the fact that you could basically generate anything with AI and call it source material, even if it's crap, it would still be mm. a tool that could be used to pay writers less. So this was a really important concession here that like AI cannot be considered. Source material. Um, A writer can choose to use AI when performing writing services, um, but um, the company cannot require the use of AI. So it can be used as a tool by the writer. It can't be required. um, And the company must disclose to the writer if any materials given have been generated by AI or incorporated uh, AI. Um, And the WGA reserves the right to assert that exploitation of writers' materials to train AI is prohibited by MBA or other law. So the two issues here, both of which were important that we've talked about on this podcast before, are that, you know, we can't outsource part of a writer's job to AI and and use that as a tool to depress wages. And then the other issue is that, you know, ownership and authorship and attribution of a writer's material. Um, and that comes out in this question about the comp- must disclosing if materials that were generated by the writer are, um, are, ge- are used to train AI programs. So this was, you know, another big win. And I think that this is more or less what the WGA wanted. So this is great because we've talked about how the WGA and sag After have kind of been leaders in talking about how AI generated content is going to affect workers um, because it's not going to end here in entertainment.
1: No, I, I'm so concerned about AI and I'm sure that every person um, who is uh, remotely intrigued enough to listen to a podcast about this writer strike right, would mm-hmm. also be concerned about it. And uh, I just think it is away it is the perfect tool for large corporations such as max such as netflix such as disney abc to get away with exploiting labor and not having to compensate people fairly it is the number one tool to get stuff done by robots right like to get stuff done by computers and when you eliminate um because the other part of it is like there are always going to be people out there who won't care that like there's an unethically sourced cartoon. Did you see what was going around of this guy who made like a Calvin and Hobbes AI? Oh, cartoon? I didn't see that. It was it's horrible. It's not funny. It doesn't look like Calvin and Hobbes that much. It it it's atrocious. And yet some people will look at that and be like, "Oh, that's fine, whatever, who cares?" And your goal isn't to is like not only to protect the workers but also to protect the sanctity of like what we're creating which i know is like high and mighty and whatever and listen i make i've worked on some lame shows we are people telling stories that's all this industry is is like stories being told narratives being told and if you have something that is not human making not human storylines eventually we are losing the entire humanity of the projects mm-hmm. we are making and i would a million times rather netflix have less money and pay its workers more then watch a crappy show, like, you know, get season eight of Stranger Things cranked out faster. You know? Right, it's
0: just not right. worth it. It's never worth it. Um, so, so this was a big this was a big win on on the AI. And I'm sure that this how this affects um the entertainment industry is going to evolve, but it was really important in this round of negotiations to get something that protects writers um in all of this, in all of this evolution. Um The another aspect of this contract, which is, I think, a very clear win for writers is uh, improved terms, what they say, improved terms and high budget subscription video on demand. And this is really about viewership based streaming residuals. So we've talked a lot on this podcast about how residual payments have been affected by streaming because allegedly nobody you know can tell you how many viewers your content is getting. They haven't been paying uh, users fairly for really really high performing they haven't been paying uh, workers fairly for high performing content on streaming platforms. So with this uh, uh, with this part of the agreement, will protect as saying the Guild has negotiated a new residual based on viewership. Um, Then this is specifically for high-budget subscription video on demand. Um, And in, in concert with this, they have also... Um, had the companies agree to provide streaming data transparency. So this whole Let's question. Go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's how ma- no, go. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how many people are watching Severance. Nobody knows how many people are watching um, Orange is the New Black. All of a sudden, we're going to demand that we have transparency in uh, in streaming numbers, which is going to help enable workers to ask for What they're worth. Um, So this was great because residuals came up consistently as as a a really important aspect of this fight. Um, They're also asking for minimum terms for advertising-supported streaming. Um, So um, there's more and more ad-supported services. I think that every you know we have you you mentioned you know HBO. I mean HBO Max. I mean Max. And now you know everything that was a premium service is now. Uh, having an advertising-supported version. So um, the high-budget programs made for ad-supported streaming services will get the same initial compensation terms as the equivalent programs made for subscription streaming services, including a primetime script fee. So protections there, increased compensation for series employment, weekly pay, and staff writer script fees. Um, That's important as well, because we've talked about how in um, this shift from these longer seasons to shorter seasons has meant that people are getting paid per episode when episodes are no longer equivalent to what they once were. So um, this is is providing weekly minimums uh, for different levels of uh, different terms for employment, Um, development of room premiums. So writers working on any Title in a pre-greenlit room of at least three writers are guaranteed um, certain rates uh, during the during the length of their employment. Um, staffing and duration provisions for episodic series. So we've talked about preserving the writers' room and there's stipulations here that will do this. Um, improved options, exclusivity and span protections, um, and um, and other. Uh, there's a number of other uh, terms here in this agreement, a showrunner training program. A lot of our guests talked about how some of the changes in the industry have made it harder and harder for people to get the kind of exposure and uh, experience on sets, doing different types of things so that they can develop that talent and actually have career advancement. So that's, so that's great. So we can continue. I mean, I'm sure things will continue to come up on this podcast about um all of the wins here but everything that I'm seeing Naomi from writers from union representatives from the media is hailing this as a tremendous success for the guild.
1: It's it's so not only is that true but in particular like I mentioned earlier the to me the biggest win here which I know is everybody's going to have their different opinion um, and personally, my favorite one of my favorite voices on The Strike is Adam Conover, partially because I'm a mm-hmm. college humor obsessive, and also because I think he's just a genius at breaking things down, um, is the streaming numbers, right? Mm-hmm. That is so crazy important to know. I know that personally, uh, companies I work for that, where we make shows, we never hear our streaming numbers. We never hear what we do on platforms. And frankly, the only streaming numbers I can access because I worked on a YouTube plus show. So I can go look at YouTube and see how many views are on there. Right. But having streaming data is so critical to knowing where you stand in uh, the eyes of these mega corporations who are only getting bigger, like Paramount plus is exploding. And, ha- and is under the paramount umbrella is under the mtv viacom umbrella um it, it's so expansive i mean peacock and nbc and universal and then you have um disney abc like mm-hmm. the the massive massive control that these corporations have had due to holding back numbers like you know that gif of the little girl she's like an asmr girl and she's like i'll take that like that's what we're doing right now in order to take back control and have power because you know you could get a nielsen rating for uh cable tv you could get a syndicated spot on television and make tons of money and that is so inaccessible now because you know like Matthew's not netflix anymore what the hell I gonna go watch Mad Men? i <laughs> But like, did AMC ever find out Netflix's numbers? Uh, you know, like all these shows that are generating large amounts of income, right? If The Office went off, did The Office end up going off of Netflix? Do I remember that right? I think, yeah, I think it did. Right. Like that was like a huge, probably a huge, lost for netflix and did nbc ever you know nbc i think only really know knew that because everybody never shut the hell up about how they watch the office all the time yeah like there's no data that is accessible via these companies and now there will be and i think that is thrilling
0: yeah Yeah, lack of transparency has always been uh, a really vital tool in how employers can suppress the power of labor, right? I mean, and it goes from the lack of wage transparency, like when you don't know what other people in your company are making, then you won't be able to recognize whether or not you're being compensated fairly. So the lack of transparency around that is a a way that has been used to undermine Workers' power, um, the lack of their uh, of of m- these available metrics of how their work is performing is a way of undervaluing labor and keeping them in the dark about their power. So transparency is always going to be a big win for labor. And with the ways that streaming has changed the game, and with the way that the whole landscape is is shifting, I think that this transparency is going to be really vital. Um, back in August, Naomi. The WGA uh, released their antitrust report about the new gatekeepers, how Disney, Netflix and Amazon will take over media. And the more information we have about how these companies are actually doing right, like what their revenue is. Is, is it just are, are are subscribers really translating to profits? Does the business model work? And the more transparency we have over what is driving that success, um, the better equipped workers will be to navigate that, and the better equipped, um, you know, lawmakers will be in breaking up these problematic aspects of the mm-hmm. industry. It's
1: amazing. It, it's like fantastic, and and there's still a lot to be done and I think that what people are understanding with the WGA that I think they were not understanding with SAG Mm -hmm. because you know SAG was looked at as like why is somebody who you know why is Chris Evans complaining and why is millionaire so-and-so complaining the reality is that a actors are like just think about all the toys that are out there with like I saw the worst-looking Chris uh, Pratt, Guardians of the Galaxy toy, the other month. Mm -hmm. Like, think about um, all the social media that is out there, how actors now are required to be posting on social media about the work that they're doing as additional promotion. Right, Um, right. Just the massive amounts of content that are generated, A, for projects, uh, because projects are for the studio, right? An actor can have a successful career, of course. But the reality is that when a project is being pushed towards you, it's because Lionsgate wants your money. It's because Columbia wants your money. Like these these companies are looking to get you to go to the movie or spend your dollars uh, and and view their content. And actors are working very hard for either a crazy amount of money or for mm-hmm. very little money. Yeah. Um, you know, I actually this is so funny, and I think it's. It, it, it's kind of hilariously indicative in a weird way. So I was I've been watching um, he's really funny. His name is like Kean, but he made um, yeah, Kean Carlisle. He made a really funny YouTube video where he basically broke down all of Zack and Cody, the spite of Zack and Cody. <laughs> and what he had pointed out was there's like this new show, or this show that I'm too old for on uh, Nickelodeon or on Disney Channel called Oh, it's it's some stupid show, right? But it only had like 80 additional speaking roles over like 100 episodes. And shows like Wizards of Waverly Place and Zack and Cody had 300 additional speaking roles Mm -hmm. over the course of like 100 episodes or something. And you look at that and what is so obvious is... This is the squeezing of labor. It's not hiring yeah. actors for additional roles. Because if you speak on camera, you get paid. But if you don't speak on camera, or if they put a voice over and after you, right. doesn't matter. You're not getting paid. Um, they're not wanting to pay, right? Like, you know, they don't want to pay uh, people residuals for these performances. Right. Um, all, all this stuff that is so indicative of. Companies squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, a, making content worse, making TV shows worse, uh, because they don't want to do things like pay a working actor a dollar for every time they screen the TV show, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that something that where SAG goes, I don't know how you feel, but I'm really hoping that SAG goes somewhere exciting as well. This obviously, yeah. the WGA deal is a great sign. But um, I think a lot about the background actors that I work with and I talked about background actors, how they're like people in their 70s. They're like people in their 70s who will sit on set for 12 hours a day to be in the background of the Irishman for one scene to get treated like shit by a bunch of overworked, (laughs) chain-smoking, like, production, second ADs. Yeah. I know them. And they love acting so much. And they have health insurance through acting and yeah, it, it bums me out that a lot of the sad conversation became about like rich people and became about like, well, Chris Evans is gonna live comfortable. Yeah, you know how many commercials Chris Evans, to, you know, how many Rock just did a watch commercial? What the why did he need to do a watch commercial? He's an Oppenheimer, right? But he still needed to do a watch commercial. I mean, it's interesting, it's
0: hard to find like because it's hard to find exactly what these numbers are. Are um, But, you know, we've talked about how over 80 percent of the SAG members do not meet the minimum required to get health insurance, which shows that a lot of people are making low income to poverty wages, almost more so than the WGA. Like I said, I, it's hard to find an apples to apples comparison. But in both in, in industries, the median salary is somewhere around forty five thousand um, dollars. Uh, forty-five thousand a year. So, um, it's it's not. We're not talking about, by and large, the glitzy Hollywood elite when we're talking about who's striking for what. What SAG and what the WGA have been striking for. Um, I think to your point, Naomi, that the willingness of the AMPTP to come to the table and actually meet so many of the writers' demands um, suggests that they're going to approach SAG-AFTRA with the same um, with level of openness because it feels like players in the AMPTP have decided that they can no longer suffer this strike. And in order to end it, they actually, they have to end it with both, with both guilds. Um, So let's, let's take, uh, let's take a minute to talk about where we are with SAG-AFTRA. So um, after 146 days of WGA strike, we are now today on the 80th day of SAG-AFTRA, Striking, today is Sunday, October 1st, and um, tomorrow, Monday, is when SAG-AFTRA is set to resume negotiations with the AMPTP. Um, you have to think that the success of the WGA can only bode very well for how it's going to go with SAG-AFTRA.
1: Yes, the thing that troubles me about SAG-AFTRA is like that side of things where there are um, people who are in great positions of power, like people who make lots of money and are leads of films, where I do think that writers, for the most part, um, there are very few people in the WGA who hold a lot of power based on their success or celebrity, Um then not Aaron Sorkin say something shitty and I forget someone said something where I was like, really? Like, uh-huh. uh, but that's one in however many. And obviously we, uh, we bullied that guy from green arrow or whatever. And, but, but there are my fear. And I think this is just my extrapolation. I don't think it's actually really based in anything that I've seen or witnessed is that the, it is easier to win over the people who are high up in the um let's say like the one percent of SAG because there are far more of them with far more power in than in the WGA. And I just hope that the AM that the discussions don't benefit mostly famous people but it could totally work out like it it really could and i i mm-hmm. that's like my big negative fear but it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily come true it could all go really well uh in particular i really hope that the the way that ai went for the wga means that the ai is going to go okay for background actors because that is one of the most frightening things to me is the scanning of background actors yeah uh, you know, you're going to be in this scene all of a sudden um, or like, you know, as pe- actors have expressed, when the actors die, can they just slap their face on a stand in and say, like, look, like he lives, you know, that they don't want that. They don't. They, that's not why they're not. That's not why they're actors. A lot of them.
0: Mm hmm. Um, So we'll see how this unfolds. Um, I think that it is encouraging. Like we know that um, Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, who is the lead negotiator for SAG-AFTRA and Fran Drescher, I have already kind of had side conversations with some of the media CEOs who really stepped in to um, push for the WGA deal, um, and I should mention that that seems to have been a big influence on the AMPTP being willing to um, come to the table was the influence of Bob Iger and Donna Langley and David Zaslaus and Ted Sarandos, um, so that there was kind of the CEO push that we do need to end this. So we can only assume that they're going to come with the same, um, you know, level of resolve to end the strike. Um, I think that the AI issues are different enough that, you know, we'll see, we'll see if they're willing to, um, to, to come and, and meet what the SAG-AFTRA has been uh, requesting, which I actually think has been, you know, a very, very reasonable um, request for informed consent about the use of Actors' images. Um, so this is also going to start. Um, this is going to start evolving um, as they meet, starting on Monday, probably the earliest that you might be hearing this podcast. Um, and SAG-AFTRA has also been busy um, in the interim. Uh, voting to support unanimously or nearly unanimously, overwhelmingly, certainly with a, over 98% to uh, cease work for 10 major video game companies um, as part of an interactive media uh, negotiation. So um, lots of work uh, happening right now on the SAG-AFTRA side, and we're
1: all eager to see how that unfolds. It's it's just another industry where things can be changed and need to be changed. Very, you know, like animation, video games. Every they are in desperate need of, of change, and I hope it will go through for them.
0: Um, so that's a that's a very exciting update on what's going on with the uh, labor disputes right now in Hollywood. As they resolve, there's a lot for us to continue talking about here on Strike Up the Conversation. I have some ideas. For upcoming episodes that I want to bring you because as we're going to chat with Naomi today, um, you know, this is not the full extent of all of the labor issues in entertainment, just what the writers have been fighting for and just what SAG-AFTRA has been fighting for. There are a lot of other workers that come together, Naomi, to bring us the entertainment we enjoy. And in order to start talking about that side of things, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your career.
1: It's a career now. It's exciting because mm-hmm. it, it, for a long time, I was just like a schmuck who would go wherever somebody told me to go pick something up. Um, no, I, so I was a theater kid, as I would say a lot of us in the podcast pipeline are. Um, and I wanted to originally I actually really wanted to be a playwright when I was a kid, I loved theater and I loved writing plays. And I had all these visions and then I took a media class and I realized that, Oh wait, like plays get this on TV, are TV shows so you could just make TV shows instead. And they would also be like plays. And I, I was so into it. And I, you know, Shout out to Mr. Sheedy, took Mr. Sheedy's class and it was like off to the races. And then I went to college and, you know, made a bunch of either crappy films or like took a bunch of classes. But then I actually I went to college upstate and I didn't like it. Um, And I moved back. I moved to the city. I didn't live in the city originally as uh, growing up with my life. But I moved to New York City and I started going to college and also being a freelance P.A., um, where I get paid like $75. I swear to God, one time as a PA, I got paid $75 to walk around with this couple that was filming like a video for this woman's blog. She was like Polish and like had a blog about how glamorous her life was in New York. And so they did this, you know, the, you know when um, Kevin McAllister pulls up to the Plaza Hotel in a limo with a pizza, yeah. they were recreating that. And then at the end, like, I paid $75 to basically just hold their crap. And then in the end, they were like, get rid of this pizza. And so I just, like, ate a slice and looked around for somebody to give it to. And nobody was around, so I had to throw it out. I was really sad about that. But it's a weird, weird industry that I have just gotten really lucky by living in New York City and being, um, working on a lot of sets for free until people gave me opportunities to um, work for money. And I have you know, been to every borough at five o'clock in the morning to get a shoot done. Um, and it's been the, the greatest thrill of my life to work in this industry. All I wanted to do was work on TV shows. And, and now I work on TV shows exclusively. I used to work on like, you know, crappy commercials and music videos. Oh my God. I once had to stay up until like I stayed up all night working on a Dua Lipa music video once, and I it, it was miserable. And now I don't have to do that anymore. It's amazing. Uh, but I, I worked my way up from production assistant to office production assistant to now production coordinator um, full time at a company, which is pretty unheard of, I would say, for most people who know what it's like to be a production coordinator. So I'm really lucky where I find myself in my career at this point in time.
0: So, um, you gave us some examples of things that a production assistant might do, but like, can you just give us like a breadth of like, these are all of the different things that need to happen to, you know, I, so like a TV show or like, you know, all of the different jobs from, you know, getting coffee to throwing out the pizza to whatever (laughs) that like go into actually bringing these projects to life.
1: From my PO, like my section of the industry or for everything. There's a lot of roles. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start. Let's
0: start with yours. And then let's talk about some of the other roles that people might not be as familiar with. And as Naomi and I were talking in like the, um, before we started recording, it's like just thinking about all of the different names that come through in the credits and all of those different, like, I don't think a lot of listeners know about all of those roles or what all of those people are doing.
1: Yeah, I would highly recommend the thing that taught me the most about um, what roles were on movie sets was it was a quantum leap pad um, touch book that had little different guys representing. No, I don't know. That was my thing. That also <laughs> taught me about movies, though. And it would be like, this is the best boy. This is what the best boy does. And I, I think I blame that for why I'm in the industry now. Um, but OK, so I am a production coordinator. I am on the production management track, aka on the track to be a producer. And producer, I think, is a very uh, catch-all title for a lot of roles on set. So, for example, the producers of Big Brother, um, at a certain point when you become a producer, you become like a problem solver all the time. So Mm -hmm. somebody like... You know, Alison Grodner is making a lot of decisions and is making a lot of calling a lot of shots and is also making a lot of creative solutions for problems that the show is encountering. Uh, Movie producers are helping with things like getting locations and getting permits and getting like contracts worked out with the actors. They are, um, especially in movies, very focused on like both the money and the logistics in some ways. Um, producers I work with in reality television um, are producing the episode and picking the locations that they're going to and writing the treatments for Netflix or whatever company, but mostly Netflix, and mm-hmm. saying, This is what we're going to do in the episode. Do you approve it? There's producers, a huge role. There's so many different kinds of producers. And specifically in production management, you are in charge of things like payroll, uh, booking travel, booking. Um, hotels for people, hiring the crew, you're in charge of um, making daily schedules. It's a lot of people management and a lot of time management, Um, getting things like getting additional gear if you need additional gear. Um, And also on the other side of things, I work in post-production a lot. So I have to watch down episodes to make sure that everybody in the footage is released. And I have to make sure Mm -hmm. that we have releases for every location and every i have had to track down murals in like argentina to be like can we find the person who made this mural to get them to sign a release it's bonkers the 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 things that go because it's you know it's it's a it's a a product at the the end of the day it's like Mm -hmm. a legal you you open yourself up to like lawsuits you know it's like copying Mm -hmm. someone's music or something um and it's part of my job is to make sure that we don't do that (laughs) Mm-hmm. Which seems insane because like I'm not a lawyer. I'm 28 years old. You know, like I don't uh that's not my job. But um production management in particular would is so much about the logistics and the nature of everyday, even things like literally getting everyone's lunch orders, where are we gonna go for lunch? Um it can be as small as that. Um I don't know. What do you do you have any questions? Like what what should we
0: no, that's, I mean, that that's great. <laughs> like, I think that, like, part of what I wanted to capture was, like, all of the different tasks from, like, the mundane to the sublime that, like, need to be done. And, like, that somebody just needs to be in charge of knowing what all of those things are and making sure that all of those, you know, like, all of the dies, I's are dotted, all of the T's are crossed, all of the loose ends are tied up. Yeah,
1: making sure that everybody invoices if they need to invoice for something like it's my email is like, so no episode is the same. No show is the same. Um and it, it can be, uh, frankly, a very demanding job depending on the show you work on. And mm-hmm. when it comes to what we're talking about, which is like wage transparency and um, being overworked and all these things, mm-hmm. I have I want to talk about a show. I don't know if we want to talk about it now or later. I want to talk about an sh- experience I had in the show. But it, it can be so demanding. Um, but at the same time, I think it is one of the most consistent uh workforces in the industry if that makes sense like Uh uh-huh I'm as an office PA you know people want to be on set they want to hold the camera they want to you know direct the scene whatever um and you might be on set for three days and as the office PA I would get paid for two weeks so that's why I became an office PA. part of this I'm just Uh making money um and being on set is a very intense experience, especially when you're a young person, especially when you have a lot of dreams about what you do want to achieve. And I think that this industry is very um, trial by fire. And so if you are somebody out there who is listening and saying, I would like to become a production assistant, I would like to learn these things. I can't recommend enough like watching people talk about it uh, like on YouTube or listening to yeah. people who are production assistants or used to be production assistants um, reading something. There's something called like the PA handbook that's out there that breaks out everything you need to do to be a PA because it's, it is the most easily exploitable class of labor in this industry. No question like PAs and drivers. Um, cause you can get fired in a minute cause there's another PA around the corner, you know, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of love in my heart. And part of why I wanted to come on this podcast and talk about it is because I have a lot, a lot of love in my heart for, like, giving people the chance to grow and learn and get better in the mm-hmm. industry. And it's very difficult to do that as a PA. But it's also, like, it's also, like, being, like, a... um Not a Pokemon evolution, I guess, but like, you know how you can just be, you can evolve into so many different things as a PA. Uh You you can get so much experience and and shape exactly where you want to go. Which is why I love this industry in a lot of ways is you can just figure out that actually I want to be a DIT all of a sudden. And you're like, great. That's amazing. Good for you. You're gonna make a hell of a lot of money doing that. Good for you. What's it? What's DIT stand for? Digital Imaging Technician, Amanda. A DIT. Okay. This is a hilarious world to talk about. The DIT is the person who is in charge of copying the files off of the cards on the camera into whatever sort of drive or um, cloud or whatever that uh, your company is using to store the data, right? So it is uh, a job where a guy or you know, a person sits at a computer and watches the file transfer and make sure nothing went funky and make sure all the clips are there. Um, it seems like a very stressful job, frankly, because you yeah. have to make sure everything transferred over. But that's a post-production role as a DIT. Um, and you're with the camera department, too. You're on set a lot of the time as well. Wow. Um, just waiting for, you know, yelling at people who put a coffee cup on your table because you can't risk water spilling on your stuff.
0: Yeah. That's a fun
1: role. Um, it's like
0: you're transporting the jewels, like yeah, to, you're, yeah. you're the,
1: the guy with the armored vehicle, yeah, right. absolutely. Um,
0: okay, so um, I want to talk <laughs> about I want to talk about like the labor conditions and being on set because we've yeah. talked to actors, we've talked to background actors, and you know from those conversations, you know part of. The picture that has been painted is like, you know, set days can be long, they can be grueling, unpredictable things can happen, um, they can end up being pushed longer. And all of these conditions that are happening for actors and background performers is also all happening for production as well. And we talked about how union productions um, like, for example, sag Afters union protections um, are important for making sure that people are not abused and exploited. And um, there's some real safety hazards that can happen in that um, and other abuses. So talk about how conditions at set, on set in terms of working hours, in terms of safety, um, what is that like on
1: the production side? Um, well, I... I want to mention that um, something that has occurred uh, in last month was that um, IATSE had created the Production Workers Guild, Local 111, which mm. was um, created to represent freelance production assistants, production department workers, but it was mostly for um, uh, commercial production assistants. So uh, not necessarily television or film. Um And this was an amazing thing, uh, because for so long, PAs do not have a union. You know, you have to pick a department and pick a path to join the union. So you can do Director's Guild training, um, and you can go on to become a second AD or first AD. But you have to go through, like, this really rigorous training to do it. And you still might not get it at the end of the day. Um, But... In all my time, the only union I've ever vaguely been a part of is I was part of the, I was part of, I think, the WGA because I worked for Vox and Vox had union protection and I got, like, a little bit of money. Um, Vox is one of the best jobs I ever had. I I, I love Vox. Shout out to Vox.com. They paid their production people real good. And I... I've had a little bit of union coverage through that but not enough to a join the union and b all it gave me was like a little flex money in my like health insurance but not enough to actually pay for full health insurance for a whole year mm-hmm. um and the the production assistants are so desperately in need of unionization because we are i say we I'm not technically a production assistant anymore but it is the easiest exploitable class um because so for, here's, here's a, a day that could totally be asked of you as a PA in New York City. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're going to pick up the van at CC Rentals. CC Rentals is in midtown Manhattan. You're going to drive down to lower Manhattan, pick up a bunch of crew members. You need to get there by 6 a.m. Then you need to go into Brooklyn to bring them all to set and arrive by set by 8 a.m. Um, so you have to manage your time to get to downtown Manhattan after picking up a vehicle at 6 a.m. So you're waking up at like 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. and driving through traffic right and then wait for the 12-hour day to be over go back drop the vehicle off and you might work for 14 to 16 hours and not sleep because hey you also have to be on set um I would often let like driver PAs nap in the car because they would be working so much and have to be awake for that there was a incident in New Mexico or Arizona where a production assistant like crashed a car and there are many more which I'm sure have not made news but you know you're putting this exhausted person behind a 15 passenger van vehicle it's not like a you know it's not like a minivan or a sedan it's like a it's like a pretty decent sized vehicle and saying drive it through New York get everybody home safe and um Driving is actually one of the biggest things that I advocate for people for production systems to know about themselves. I, uh, I'm a queen who doesn't drive. uh, And I often tell people like, honestly, I don't need to drive. Like I I don't need to drive in a city, but I don't, I don't drive for work and I would never encourage somebody to drive for work. Uh, I often need people to drive for work, unfortunately, but I would never tell you as a PA to drive for work because a they don't care about you if you get your license. If, if something happens and your license gets struck, doesn't matter. They don't care. Production doesn't care. They'll pay for a parking ticket maybe. But they'll ask you to drive box trucks. They'll ask you to drive, like, huge vehicles through the streets of New York City. Um, and it's it's bananas. What, it's, what it I mean, it
0: sounds incredibly stressful and awful (laughs) but one of the things that strikes me as you talked about that because um you know one of the things that i've talked about with um with i think that this was part of our um, my mary doyle conversation about background Actors was that sometimes union protections on a set like are protecting even the non union workers because like the limits on what the workday are okay they're gonna have to end shooting so everybody gets to go home whether you're part of SAG after or not so like sometimes these unions are actually protecting other workers I also talked about yeah. that with Zed and Ayazi but um the question like but once your day involves like three hours of picking things up and running around to get to set and then whatever you have to do after set to shut everything down then you're not even like if if we're saying that actors can work for 10 hours on set then anything that production has to do before or afterwards is not protect protected by those union contracts
1: well so i think a good example is like i used to work on hallmark movies where the actors are union but the set is not right Mm -hmm. um i it is very, the typical day on set is 12 hours with a break at six for lunch. So you're operating very often and I operate, in most sets I operate on, you, you have a call time. The time before your call time, you getting to set is your own time. So if my call is at nine and I have to leave my house an hour early, that hour is just my commute. Then lunch will be at three till three 30 and then you're out at nine thirty because of the half hour for lunch. On for actors, they get wonderful things like turnaround time, you know, ma- minimum 12 hours of turnaround time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the
0: time, that's the time between when they have to report back to set. right. when they
1: leave set. So if you leave yes. set at 10 o'clock at night, you come back 10 o'clock in the morning. Production assistants don't have that. We We like its sort of implied like often you want to respect a 12 hour turnaround. you have to respect it for certain people. Um, in the industry, like if a guy's, if a camera guy's union or whatever, but um, that can go out the window. And it's always, for production systems, you are always the first people to have your time eaten and disrespected because nobody cares that you didn't get eight hours of sleep last night and also had four extra hours to do whatever you want you know?
0: I mean, and this is like, I mean, this is just, uh, you know, like to state the obvious, it's like, it's important that people have time to get to and from their home and sleep. Like that, so that they
1: can, so that they can operate safely. That you can operate safely. A hundred percent that you can drive safely, that, um, that you are not like as a production assistant, I'm not often like lifting heavy equipment or like moving lights or whatever, but, um, you have to just be around and be on your feet all day and uh often i'm cleaning up at the end of the night uh you know you have to be in the location and help close it out um and you have to be at set the next day and again this is why i say like i don't tell people to drive because what how how would you function if you had to drive on like six hours of sleep or five hours of sleep i've gone to set on like four hours of sleep before and it's mostly because i just can't go to sleep but you know what if i had to drive a car i i I would never in my life want to do that Mm -hmm. um and companies and especially shows that are in new york city and are shows like um that are procedurals or or shows where nobody really cares about the actual like artistic merit of it that happens a lot where they're just trying to meet as many pages per day have you talked about this the the page per day count you're trying to hit we have not talked about that so on a show where there is a script you are trying to achieve a certain number of scenes that break down to pages. Pages Mm -hmm. are usually divided into eighths, so it'll be like five and a half, five and a half pages or something. There's like a typical number for how many pages a day a movie will hit, like a a feature film. Mm -hmm. And television and television movies are like three weeks cranked up to the nth degree. It's like 15 pages compared to five. Um, These numbers are all sort of iffy, iffy. But that is like the crazy thing is that people are, are are pushing and pushing and production assistance, especially in serialized TV, are the first ones to always suffer from that.
0: Um, so it's, I mean, I can imagine, like, do you have, when you get to, it's when you start your day, Naomi, like, do you have um, a pretty good idea of how many hours you're going to be out on set or how late things are going to go? Or does that end up being something that sometimes is unpredictable or changes on the fly?
1: So I'll, I'll talk about um, the show I just most recently worked on, which is a show, an amazing show called You Are Here, starring Coleman Domingo, um, which was a, a documentary show. So every day I'm working on the call sheet. So this is, this is another fun fact about, I'm getting ahead of myself, pardon me. So every day there's a call sheet that goes out that says, hey, we're starting at nine, we're ending at 930. Here's the breakdown of the schedule. Um, the problem is it's my job and my boss's job to make the call sheet so I can get home from set at 930. And then I have to sit in a hotel room with my boss and be like, Oh, well, uh, are we going to be able to get between point A and point B in -hmm. 30 minutes or do we need 45 for it? And then I work like three extra hours and I like am miserable and I just had to spend three extra hours with my boss. Um, right. who so nice that that's but that's part of your job. and
0: Like you're as a, a, in production is actually figuring out what does tomorrow's workday look like. How are we going to stay on schedule, on budget, on all of those things?
1: Yeah, my, my boss is definitely more concerned with budget than I am. The line producers also. So I have um, the the hierarchy above me is I'm the production coordinator. There's a production manager, then a line producer, and then usually an executive in charge of production or other producers. And on we. Myself and the production manager are working in tandem with the episode producer, the story producer, who has reached out to, you know, these locations and said, hey, are you free on Saturday from two to, to four? Okay, we're coming there from two to four. And so the story producer hands us this list of like, hey, here are the here's place A, B, and C we're going to today. You need to map out enough time. So A, that we're not shooting through lunch. We have to make sure that we're not... Um, that we're breaking for lunch in a location where we can get lunch, um, A, that we're respecting the schedule that the story producer has put together. Um, I should say the, like, story producer is also another word for, like, people who craft a narrative at, in post-production. So I'll just say episode mm-hmm. producer. Um, then you also have to... Think about travel time between each location from the hotel to place A, place A to place B, B to C, and then back to the hotel. You have to think about things like, we have to think about if we want to shoot B-roll at the location, if we want to film the city we're in, um, how we're traveling everybody. So booking vehicles, rental vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, And then you take that and you make a schedule and you have to kind of set it out ideally before 12 hours before your call the next day, or you're trying to crank this out because you don't go to sleep until you know what time you need to wake up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but do I get paid for those hours? No, I do not. Um, my day starts and ends when I end on set. That's what I put on my time card.
0: Wow. So all of that, I mean, like that's.
1: You that's try to do a, do a lot, lot of it ahead that, of time. But yeah, yeah if I'm in the room for an hour or two hours with my boss. I don't get paid for that hour or two hours.
0: In truth, Naomi, it sounds like all of the annoying things about like my life that I hate doing and procrastinating, only doing that like supercharged every single day.
1: Yeah. And everybody's mad at you and (laughs) you have to fix a million. It's like fixing problems that you will in this industry, like you have to get really good at at, um, not getting angry at things because somebody will tell you, go find like five coffee shops we can shoot in. And then they'll go, actually... We decide we want to shoot in a donut shop. Go find that instead, and you just have to like breathe it out Mm -hmm. and move on, and know that people don't respect your time, but you love yourself, so it's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. Um. Well, speaking of, so okay, speaking of respecting your time, we're taught we've talked about the hours. Um. What is the like in terms of compensation at these different levels at these different roles? Um you we there's not a union minimum that you can count on what is the standard like and how much variation is there across jobs
1: um so let's talk about let's talk about all this in in tandem with wage transparency Mm -hmm. um so when i was starting out as a production assistant 210 to 225 was a good rate production assistants are paid um based on this breakdown it is minimum wage And then when you hit eight hours, from eight to 10, it goes time and a half. Mm -hmm. And then from 10 to 12, it is double time. So your rate is minimum wage for eight hours, then Mm -hmm. time minimum wage and a half for two hours, and then double time for two hours, um, which typically used to break down to like 210. Listen, I'm not good at math. And for a long time, I was just parroting what people tell me. And I know that it's changed now because minimum wage has changed, whatever, whatever, whatever. 210 to 225 was, was good. A good day. 210 was cheap. 225 was a good day. 250 was, I was working on a, a an expensive commercial. Mm-hmm. 275, 300. That was like, Holy crap. Like this is the best day of my life. That is what I would get paid a day for a day rate, which is for 12. Honestly, it's not a day. It's for 12. If you work over that, you should be getting overtime. So when people text you and they tell you the day rate, they tell you, Hey, it's two ten. It's two ten for 12. Okay. Um, as a production coordinator, I would say the typical fee is anywhere from three hundred to three hundred fifty. Um, for a day rate, and honestly, it should be more. but um, the industry is is incredibly squeezed right now. and I think that, mm. um, frankly, production coordinators deserve a, a crap ton of money. Um, not just me, but the people I know who also do this job deserve so much. Um, and then from there, I can't actually really speak to salaries except for that like, Um, use 300 as production coordinators for a base of like how people will jump up. Like I think some people get paid 500 a day. Some people get paid on like a weekly salary, for example, Mm -hmm. producers or directors um, who might be operating through an S corp or who might be operating through agents get paid a larger flat fee and then they have to deal with their own taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, But typically for me, Three hundred is a perfectly uh, acceptable weekly, a uh, daily rate. Mm-hmm. Now let me tell you, Amanda, a story about a show I worked on that said, "Hey, you're going to get paid fifteen hundred a week," and I said, "Okay." And then I realized, uh, after working on it for about three weeks, that I was working Saturdays and Sundays mm. entirely through, and I said, "Okay." I worked Saturday and Sunday. Can I please have an extra $600, please, for working Saturday and Sunday? And they said, no, it's $1,500 for the week. Mm-hmm. That, Amanda, is illegal because I am not a hiring manager. And I, therefore, cannot be paid a salary. That right. is another fun fact. I cannot be paid a salary. I must be paid a daily rate. And I must be paid for every day that I work. hmm Um, I said, that's not acceptable. That is not financially feasible to me. I hated this job. It was Mm -hmm. awful. And it was for one of the most major, like, it was for a TV show that was being co-produced by a streaming service and an actual TV channel that are owned by a ginormous company. And they said, we can't pay you an extra $600. And I said, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is I told my, there were three production coordinators, me and two others. And I said, I'm getting paid 300. I'm, I'm getting boned by this. How much are you guys getting paid? And then we went back to our um, executive producer, line producer, who was the person who was in charge of the budget. And we said, this is not a feasible rate. Uh, we do not want to be paid this way. And I said, you can either pay me for the days that I work and not up my daily rate or up my weekly rate to include one mm-hmm. extra day of work. So go to 1800 or pay me for every day I work. And she said, we can't do that. I can pay you an 100, additional $150. And I laughed so hard. And I quit that job like a week later. And But I did get that raise for my other coworkers, which was fantastic. Oh, great. Um, because I talked to them consistently about it and I would tell them this is what they offered me. This is what they told me. But uh, not only is it illegal and not only is it a disrespect to my time. And Mm -hmm. I was working over 12 hours. I was working so much on that show. So you're talking about
0: working seven days a week, at least 12 hours a day, seven days a week.
1: Right. And you know, to be fair, not, not to be like, Oh, I was on my computer, but a typical day could be, Hey, We have a crew that needs, so my crew would be all over the U S like I had a guy in Florida and a guy in Oklahoma, a guy in Texas and a guy in, uh, my producers in New York and whatever. I would have to fly all of them to the city that they were supposed to shoot in every week. They needed hotel accommodations and they were typically going to a place where a large event was happening. So hotel accommodations at the last minute for six people was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, I would have to book the hotels, book the PAs, book the cars, often with about an hour's notice and you never knew when that notice was going to come. So I would be out the office from 10 AM waiting and waiting and waiting. And sometimes it would hit at like five or 6 PM. Then I'd work until eight or 9 PM and then I'd go home and then I have to wake up early on, you know, a Saturday or whatever, because crap at the fan, the PA didn't show up, the car rental didn't work, whatever, and solve these problems. Um, And it was a disaster and a nightmare. And I hated working on that show but they didn't want to pay me for that. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I was flabbergasted, especially because it was like an all women room. Mm. And so it was very like, hey, guys, we're girl bossing this. And I was like, cool, not girl boss to pay me not enough money. <laughs> like this is and this is the, the problem with, I think, our side of my side of the um industry not talking about it enough is mm-hmm. because we we are just not somebody that anybody thinks about when it comes to television or or movies. Right. Yeah. Nobody thinks about the production coordinator, but I am so integral. Any production coordinator or manager or, or office PA is so integral to the show getting completed and for everybody else to be able to do their job smoothly. And I wish that people talked about it more. Um, I told you about Facebook groups, Amanda.
0: Yeah, I do want to talk about that. Yeah, because um, one of the things you know, so we you know we 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 were, we were talking a little bit about you know this this idea of transparency and and protections, and I think that there are like, and I would love to do actually an episode of Strike Up the Conversation where we talk about like what's involved in forming a union where there yeah. isn't one sure. because um, you know because I I you know people I. We, we've seen it where, you know, we talked about IATSE and the VFX workers like starting to do that. And there's so there's examples in entertainment and obviously Whoa. examples from other places. But this idea of workers coming together and using their power, you can do that without a union in small ways. And the easiest way is by by talking one on one to people. Um, but then you were saying that there is these social media groups, there's Facebook groups that have formed so that PAs can be in conversation with each other
1: yeah shout out to local zero heroes shout out to i need a pa um but uh staff me up in linkedin or or, and uh indeed are okay but whatever um there are facebook groups uh typically if you live in a city with a high amount of filming so like chicago la um atlanta has a huge film industry um new york but also upstate new york um albuquerque i think even has a pretty thriving like they're all over right? You probably have a Facebook group that is like local something production. And so if I need a production assistant, I'll post in that Facebook group and say, hey, I'm looking for a production assistant. Here's the days. Here's the rate. Um, please send me your resume. If somebody makes a post that's like, I need a PA for $150 a day for a network TV show, you're going to get so clowned on. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's beautiful to watch because those people deserve to be clowned on because they're not they are detrimental to um, the, uh, I don't want to say the cause, but like they're detrimental mm-hmm. to workers' rights and, and mm-hmm. having um, a proper payment in this industry. But also on top of all of this, um, something that I think is, is becoming more apparent is like, and probably the reason that the woman who was in charge of the show I worked on couldn't pay me more is because... people above them were like well we don't care about these roles we've gotten away with paying them so little for Mm -hmm. so long and it doesn't matter it's not in the budget there is when i tell you there is no way that the parent company of the show i work for didn't have the budget yeah it's it's absurd so i'm often being told rates to offer production assistance at the behest of either the company I work for, the production company, which is not the same as Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. Netflix can have a production company, but I don't work uh, as an employee of Netflix. I work as Mm -hmm. an employee of the company that is like outsourced with making the show.
0: Yeah. So that's like a subcontract that Netflix has like agreed. This is how much you have for your subcontract. Make this show
1: happen. Right. And, you know, they have a lot of say along the way, but, you know, Netflix is trying to pay... Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or whoever are trying to pay as little money as they can to get the end product. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time it's a trickle down um, like effect of like, hey, I can only charge this much. Um, but I've seen some pretty laughable rates uh, for certainly for New York City. Um, and it's difficult because other rates in other locations are Different based on minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and- you meant
0: you mentioned minimum wage, and you're in New York where minimum wage is fifteen dollars an hour, and minimum wage in my home state of Pennsylvania is seven twenty-five an hour.
1: Yeah, and, and it's tough. I mean, I still paid. We went to Pennsylvania for a show, and, and I'm pretty sure we paid the PA's two twenty-five or two fifty. Um, and if I could, I would offer more. I would pay more um But unfortunately, that's not my decision, and and mm-hmm. also, like Netflix or whatever company, because Netflix didn't produce the show I went to Philly on. Y- you are not given the money by people, and so one of the ways that you can stand up as a worker and say like you can have solidarity by exchanging information of how much money you're getting paid. But additionally, um, you can also quit jobs. You cannot take jobs that that. Charge less money, and you can tell them. I think that's a laughable rate. Um, I know that San Francisco has obviously a very high cost of living, and just they have like a. And it, you know, you weren't. I was told once you weren't going to find a good PA in San Francisco for less than three hundred fifty dollars. And I was like, good for them. Good for them. That yeah. they are charging that rate. Bad for me, but good for them. Like it, it's. I'd rather somebody be expensive and hard to get than somebody not know their worth and not value mm-hmm. themselves properly.
0: Um. To that point, Naomi, I was just wondering, like, how – like, in in this – so, in the pipeline, I imagine, you know, there's lots of people who want to get involved in the industry and are looking for an entry-level thing to do. And, like, we talk about, like, okay, like, the, the kid who gets the coffee or who does these other, you know, production tasks. Are there still people on set who might not be getting
1: paid anything at all? Um the instances where I have seen people in production not being paid were always classified as interns. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And interns are certainly an exploited class of people in the market because, um, well, interns don't all come from the same background. and Some interns certainly can just be like, yeah, I can do this for free because I can afford it, right? But when it comes to like free labor and I've done it too. I've done either a French short film, but I also worked the way that I got involved in the homework movies is I did like three days on set as an unpaid PA. I just got bored and food mm-hmm. meal, copy credit is what they call it. Sometimes where you get a meal, you get a credit on IMDb and you get a copy of the film to put in your reel or whatever. Ah. Um, and working for free is a great tool for meeting people um, which I know sounds so counterintuitive to everything we've just talked about. But I think a good example is that when I, I found out a short, a friend of mine was making a short film. And I said, Andrew, like, I'll do anything to work on that film. I'll, let me help you out. And then I met a wonderful woman named Lauren, who was a production coordinator and was like, I need PAs. I'll hire you for actual stuff. So I would always encourage if you need to help, if you need to do stuff, like, you know, we do our survivor games for free, like go help people that you want to help for free, but never ever work for a media company and never ever work for a TV show or a movie for free. Um, They just don't want to do the paperwork. They don't want to do any of the stuff that involves like getting you to be a legitimate participant in the, in the stuff. And um, I think especially in college, people think that um, it will boost your resume to be like, "Oh, I worked for this production company that never paid me," um, but they're like, they're not going to have your back because they don't want to have your back in the first place.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the un- the unpaid internship is like something that um, I think is really interesting from this labor discussion um, standpoint. You know, obviously unpaid interns are not you know, having their own labor compensated. They're also a tool for driving down the value of the rest of the labor force that they're a part of. Um, it's not something that an individual can change on their own, right? Like If you have an opportunity and that's something that's going to end up being important for your experience or you want to do, um, but that's more what like the union level of protection can do is making sure that everybody who's doing a certain kind of job is getting compensated in a certain way. Way. So that's um, you know, was you know, I was just curious to hear yeah. like how common the unpaid internship is in the world of production and like how much that is uh still a significant portion of the the labor market. I actually
1: don't think it's like crazy significant. Somebody could certainly tell me well, unpaid background extras too mm-hmm. are a huge portion of it. Um, but that's like like when I'm working on these homework movies where there's no budget and I have to fill a room with people and they're like, ask if people want to be in the movie and then I do it and I do like, you know, that's part, that was part of my job is is to get people to come and I only could pay a certain number of people per uh-huh. day. There's a, there was a SAG minimum um, that I needed to cast 25 paid background actors. And then after that I could fill the room with whoever I wanted to. So, I think it is um, a part of the market in background actors Mm -hmm. for certain. And B, I think that it is a part of the media market at a larger scale, although I don't think it is particularly affecting on set life. It is certainly a part of like small production companies who shoot their own content and are like, hey, do you want to come be a writer, producer, director, videographer, editor for our company? Those are all different jobs and they should mm. not be morphed into one job because that is bad. Those, those kinds of things I would certainly say, stay, wa- stay away from their exploitative, even if you're getting paid, if they want you to write, edit, direct, shoot, like they're, they're a mess. Don't do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Naomi, are there other aspects of set life, um, and what that, what those kind of jobs are like that you would like our listeners to know about?
1: Um set life is, uh, he's like going through the ringer. You are on your feet all day. You are, you know, getting sometimes yelled at if people are in a bad mood. I've been on fights on set before. Um, you're working in hot rooms cause I got to turn the AC off or, or you're just like being told for the eighth time to go get a cup of coffee and you feel like you're not doing what you want to do. Um, What I am so excited about in this industry is seeing what the WGA has achieved and seeing what SAG might possibly achieve. Mm -hmm. And knowing that those people that we have had solidarity with by not crossing picket lines and by, um, by, you know, supporting actors and writers, knowing that they will hopefully give the same back to us and that Mm. the um, companies at large not the that the public will have a love and respect for the people of the film industry who are not just the actors and hopefully not just the writers, but um, from all directions. And I I also want to say that, so um, Condé Nast is trying to unionize, the the workers Mm -hmm. of Condé Nast. Mm -hmm. And it's been something that I've been following for a while because my boyfriend used to work at Condé Nast. And something that I think people should keep their eyes out for. Remember, remember the whole bone appetite implosion Yes, and how it was about how certain people weren't getting paid Mm -hmm. as much as their white counterparts and all this stuff. Well, um, the media industry thrives on permalancers, even more so than unpaid, unpaid labor is Mm -hmm. permalancing. That I think is the biggest killer of careers and, and, Right. You know,
0: and can you do de- and can you define yes. that for our listeners, Naomi?
1: So a permalancer, I'm gonna look up and see if anybody else has defined it better. But so like it's you know, a permanent freelancer. Yes, you are um you are not a full-time employee of the company you work for, however, the company will consistently hire you. So you're not getting health insurance through your company. You can be fired at any moment, or your contracts can run out and you have no sort of uh, legal protections for yourself. You have a little bit, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, um, and it means that like, you are at the behest of your company at all times. Um, and it also means that they will cycle people in and out. They'll just bring you in for like three weeks to edit something and then be like, okay, we'll see you next time. Um, and the Condé Nast Union, I think they're called, I think they're Condé United on mm-hmm. Instagram. Uh, a, they've done a lot of amazing work posting about um, what they are doing, but B, I think we have to, uh, as, consumers of con- as consumers of content, as consumers of media, mm-hmm. we have to look at other forms of media. For me, what I'm particularly interested in, interested in is things like TikTok and advertising on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, if I'm an influencer and I'm shooting myself in front of a big crowd of people... Did the people behind me consent to be in the video? Did the music that I'm using uh, to advertise a product, um, do I owe the person who made that song? Yeah. Um, all this stuff. And on the other side, things like what BuzzFeed is doing and Condé Nast with all their, you know, Condé Nast is like, uh, is variety, is epicurious. Is it's bon glamour,
0: it's GQ, it's, it's Vogue. Vogue, it's a Yo- Vogue. Right. It's, it's all, yeah, it's it's so many. You you said um, The New Yorker, it's Bon Appetit. Um, so- Lots and lots and lots of Wired also. Lots and lots and lots of magazine
1: brands. So you see all their videos on YouTube, right? Like uh, a professional breakdown, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, The people who make that content are not getting the the fair rights that they deserve as longtime workers of Condé Nast. And I highly encourage everybody when we're absorbing like celebrity press junket stuff. And when we are um, watching these videos to think about how it is such a high demand and how those workers aren't getting paid properly and aren't proper employees of such a glow. Amanda, like they are based out of one of the biggest buildings downtown Mm -hmm. and they don't have enough money to mm, pay their workers properly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's absurd it's laughable and people are getting squeezed at the throat by vogue. Right, right, right. I mean, and,
0: yeah, and the, and this and this whole like the notion of of permalancers, like I remember when we first started this series and talked to my friend and WGA member. Justin Chains he said basically the production companies want to change writing to like postmates like they just want to like be able yep. to hire and and this is the, the, the we we're talking about this in the context of now content creation entertainment all of that but this is a real economic shift um, that you see across a lot of industries that they are want to move away from a model of having full-time employees with stable, predictable careers, with salary expectations, with regular wage increases, with benefits. Forget about pensions. Forget about um, all of these things that used to be just the standard in the labor market 30, 40 years ago, there's a shift to saying we just want to pay people piecemeal for work when we need it, not give them careers that give them opportunity to it for advancement where they can support, you know, buying property, building a family, whatever they want to do with their money. It's a and it's and it's anti worker. No and health
1: it, insurance, like
0: it, that's the, uh, my big on, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talk about, I mean, so in, in your industry, Naomi, like what do people, what, what, what do people do for health insurance? Cause I imagine you were talking about, it's not salary. It's these day rates. Those are not usually the types of jobs that also provide benefits.
1: Okay. I Amanda can see this. uh, Nobody else can. But I have a Manila folder called "2023 Pay Stuff" on my desk. Um, And what that is, it is a collection of every single pay stub I've gotten for the year. And that's how I've been operating. I have a spreadsheet on my. I have a spreadsheet where I break down every single check I get. And now, when I was a PA freelancing, um, I would get a lot of sporadic checks from a lot of sporadic places. A, you're not on. um, You're not on payroll anywhere. You don't have like a um, direct deposit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that because that would be too much work. You're just getting a check in the mail. Um, but you are paid through one of a few payroll companies. There's Cast and Crew. There's EP Entertainment Partners. There's um, God, what's the other? Well, now there, there's a Green Slate. Um, there's a lot of like new payroll companies. Cast and Crew, my EP, um, whatever you get a W-2 from each of them. So you get a W-2 from each of these companies um, or you might get paid I-9. So you need to pay your, not I-9, your 1099. So you might need to pay your own taxes based on the large sums of money you earned. And then you have Mm -hmm. to do the math on that. Um, And if you hit a certain threshold with a certain um, payroll company, you can get insurance through the payroll company. Okay. Um, as a freelancer. However, I've never actually done that because a I don't I don't often work at a company long enough to know that I'm always going to be on a my entertainment partner's project, to know that I would have health insurance for the mm-hmm. entire year. Um or sometimes I meet the the minimum, but I don't want to I would just have to switch health insurance like and I'm not trying to pay like the competitive stock market game of health insurance right now. Right. I'm just to stick with what I what I have that is totally separate. Um And it's very difficult. And honestly, it's something I haven't even really explored because it just seems so bananas. There's also something called, like, my flex plan that you can get money put in. Like, there's so many things that I don't even fully understand. And it's kind of like my, not my big blind spot, but one of those things where I'm like, ugh, I don't, I just... I wish life was easier and that insurance yeah. was
0: not this. Right. I mean, but like it's it's these kinds of things can be like exclusionary for people who have chronic health conditions and need to like have a stable insurance situation for people who have dependents that are under their care that need insurance. Like, I mean, just thinking about like all of the aspects of this that make it harder for people to have like to stay in these careers that we think yeah. of as like, if you, and, and maybe you can say like, oh, well, you know, go get a, get another job. But it's like, if, you're, if you care about having, if you care about having these nice things, these treats that you like to watch, like when you like to sit and stream something on Netflix, then it's like, yeah. somebody has to be able to do those jobs.
1: I mean, think about if you are a pregnant person mm-hmm. and you are, you're hoping to get pregnant But if you get pregnant, people aren't a going to hire you, or b Mm -hmm. you are going to be through undue stress while you are pregnant, Um, and then your health insurance is kind of wonky. Like it's a, I see a lot of there's a a group called Women Working in Reality TV, um, which is a private Facebook group, and you have to be invite only. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, it's an incredible group. But like I can see a lot of people are like people struggle with this element of the industry of of being. a, whether it's being a mother and having children, whether it's your own physical health needs. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's very difficult and it's not, there's no easy solution right now. Um, especially because we don't have a guild like the other, you know, we don't have a guild. We don't have a union. We don't have anybody protecting us at this moment in time. And I really hope that changes and I will be there, you know, when that changes, um, when people are, you know, need people there, um, to support it. I don't know. You know, like, I I just, I can't, I can't wait for that day to come for us because I've been working for like eight years now in this industry, something like that. Yeah. Maybe nine, we'll we'll call it nine, be fun. And I've never figured out how health insurance, well,
0: um, you know, I think that, um, you know, and I, you know, and I hope that this changes for your industry to Naomi and for workers everywhere that find themselves in these types of industries. Um, and you know, and I, and you know, we've talked to, um, we've talked to organized labor experts on this podcast before my podcast with Paul Prescott, um, unionizing isn't easy, um, but i think that what's happening now what's happened with the wga winning their contract what's happening now with the united auto workers striking what happened with the teamsters with so many different labor movements what happened with IATSE, F- vfx workers forming a union um there's you know there's a way that this stuff is contagious and having these conversations and people talking about it even if they're not in a position to unionize their workforce right now like just like talk to somebody you work with about how, you know, what's your set? Like, how much do you get paid? Like what just starting to get this transparency and these conversations happening is the first step towards collective action. And I think that some of what the the WGA has won and what SAG-AFTRA will hopefully win will be a template and will be a way for these other groups of workers to come together collectively and use their power um, because, you know, maybe there's problems with profitability in some of these industries, but we all know that the people at the very, very top are doing just fine and making money hand over fist and they need to share that stake with the people who actually create those products.
1: Yeah. Um. I don't know how long you want to go, but I have one more thing I really want to talk about that I just remembered. Please, um, please do. I want to talk about this disease of shows getting canceled before they even start. Uh-huh. Um, because that has happened to the company that I work for. I probably can't talk too much about it. <laughs> I'm not even saying that from, like, a secret, secrecy kind of thing, but I'm like, I don't even know. I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But... There was a platform that was supposed to be a big success. Um, actually, I'll talk. Okay, I worked on Qui I worked on a Quibi show that. Ooh. Like no- yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked on a Quibi show that never saw the light of day. I spent months of my life working on this show. Um, you know, we got the money from Quibi. We made the show. Whatever. Um, And it went nowhere and uh, it was crazy. If you Google, well, if you might remember how Zach Efron almost died in Papua New Guinea, that was the show I worked on. It was bananas and scary because I was like, I literally can't kill Zach Efron, I'll die. Um, But that experience and everything I went through, that show never happened because Quibi died. Um, There are other companies nowadays who are taking similar gambles by creating unsustainable streamers and unsustainable additional Mm -hmm. channels for their brand and forcing like or or having my company create shows that never see the light of day because they don't put them out there and um you know I work for a very small production company I love the people I work for um they're just incredible the whole they were the um, the company I worked for made Anthony Bourdain's shows. Oh, yeah. Um, and they are so uh, smart. My, I'm just thinking about my bosses, right? They're so smart and they care so much about um, the people that have worked for them for a very long time. And major companies just, like, fuck us sometimes. And it's so hard to watch us put effort into show after show that go nowhere um, I'm really grateful that a show like You Are Here could make it to the airwaves at all um, and it's a bummer and I hate I hate that shows do this like the Rise of the Pink Ladies got totally yanked off of mm-hmm. Paramount Plus after like a day right? These behaviors I hope will change although who knows I don't think it really made its way into the um WGA agreement, but it, it just pisses me off. It, I don't know how, like it pisses me off so much that like people's hard work will get taken away and residuals won't get made. There's no residuals in yeah. reality TV, but residuals for other, you know, right. it's just stupid.
0: It makes me mad. Well, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a great point. And I would love to, I'm still trying to produce an episode of this show that talks more about like what the business side of entertainment is like right now, because this issue of like, oh, we've produced this whole movie and it's better for us to just use it as a tax write-off than to actually release it. Um, I think that that's really fascinating, but it also just, it's like a really, really undervalues all of the labor that goes into create all of the effort and hard work and, um, you know, people's time and passion that goes into that. Um, so I think it's a really, really good point. And then also this like kind of, um, this, uh, this growth mindset that's so, you know, like this, um, kind of growth, like accelerated growth idea that's so important from like a capitalism standpoint and from a shareholder's perspective is they want to see more subscribers, more subscribers. And I think Netflix had this model that was like, oh, well, we're going to reach as many subscribers and that's what our success is. So we need content, content, content but that wasn't, that didn't really parlay into profit. So this kind of business calculus of growing, adding streaming platforms, doing all of this without really thinking about what was fiscally responsible and feasible and doing that all run on the fuel of cheap, undervalued labor. Yeah.
1: It just makes me really upset that like, because also, because we're subcontractors, because we are not a, sh- a place like Netflix that can just survive off of everybody thinking that, like, we have a million dollars and a bajillion dollars or that we're going to get a million subscribers. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And why- does the math check out? No, but don't worry about it. Invest. You know, like, it, it makes me mad that um, a lot of smaller production companies suffer at the hands of these larger corporations. Just well, for product. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much, Naomi, for talking to us today. I feel like I learned i learned so much about production. I <laughs> learned so much about the industry, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Um,
1: where can people keep up with everything that you're doing? Well, you can – I'll say this. If you're interested in being a production assistant, mm-hmm. you're interested in learning a little bit more about what it's like to be on set. you have questions – I have an entire Google doc for you. So you can DM me at Naomi Calhoun on Twitter. Um, and we can talk about what your dreams are, what your goals are, whatever. You want me to look at your resume? I'll look at your resume. I oh, like looking amazing. at your resumes. I've seen some horrible resumes and they make me so mad. So I will look at your resume for you. And I will be nicer than that about your resume. <laughs> um, and uh, just check out Silent Podcasts. Um, I have a new episode of our genius podcast, uh, fighting uh, genius podcast with Joshua Felix uh, with Brooklyn Zed. Amazing Brooklyn Zed, of Mm -hmm. course, of
0: friend of our podcast podcast as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah
1: and uh we talk about the final two the penultimate episodes of the genius season one is a rewatch spoiler free and then i can't recommend enough people to just watch the devil's game on netflix also an amazing genius style game um and i'm having so much fun so if you want to talk to me about that you should also just dm me on twitter that's my my opinion
0: amazing <laughs> amazing um well and uh, thank you so much for uh for following uh the podcast you can check out anything i'm doing at twitter at dr amanda r that's v r amanda r and go wga hell yeah